Hello and welcome to the Playground Podcast. I'm Chris Byrne with my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We have a terrific show for you today. But before we get started, we wanted to address something that's come up with our listeners. And, and Richard, some people have asked us about your speech patterns and they seem to be changing. Can you tell us what's going on with you? We hope for the best. Thank you, Chris. And thank you, everyone, who has expressed concern. We don't know what's going on with my voice, to be quite truthful with you. We do know it's not a stroke, it's not a tumor. As a matter of fact, they can't find anything. And if you are going to get an MRI, you can hire me as a consultant (laughs) because I know more about MRIs now than anybody. Essentially, I had a tooth removed uh, over a year ago. And you know that when you get a tooth implant, there's a waiting period. So I had the tooth removed. My voice immediately, I started having troubles. And we thought it was a tooth. And when I got a new tooth, then I'd be fine. And I did get a new tooth, and it wasn't. So... Other than that, I'm great. And as you say, I sound a little funny. Hang in there with me. I'm okay. And we're working on this voice thing, and it's going to be okay. Well, we're so glad to hear that. And I, and I can tell you all that, that Richard is as sharp as ever. He gives me a run for my money. Anyway, Richard, thank you for sharing that, and let's start the show. Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Burns. How you doing? I couldn't be better. We have Isaac Larian on our show today. I know. And, and I knew Isaac 30 years ago. And in that time, he's become an icon, a legend, an incredible figure in the toy industry whose toys are just just amazing. And one of the most creative guys I know. It is, Isaac, it is such a privilege to welcome you here uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Richard and Tris. Uh, it's thank you for having me, and thank you for uh, your kind words. Oh. I appreciate it. Well, we're all about kindness here because this is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb, and we are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, The Toy Guy, and Beacon Media Group. And Isaac, I was reminiscing before, I've known you since you were in a little showroom with Microgames America on some upper floor of the toy building. And let's jump in and and talk a little bit about your philosophy of play, because that's something that permeates everything you've done over the past 30 or so years that I've known you. Yeah, no, thank you, Chris. My philosophy is, you know, as, as you know, I love children. And as a result, I also love uh, uh, love toys. And you know, toy business is like an addiction. I tell people uh, when you get in toy business, be careful. It's like a roach motel. You go in, <laughs> but you can never come out. So my philosophy is really uh, great new innovations that you make for children of today, and they change all the time. They change, but that's what MGA has done over the years. I'm proud of my team. We have developed over the years over 100 new uh, 
IPs from zero up. And out of those 100, 26 of them have done $100 million or more. And I don't think any other uh, company in tour business has done that. I mean, when I say more, Brass became a $6, $7 billion business. LOL is uh, on track to, uh, to do that. And Rainbow High is on its way to become a billion-dollar brand. We turned around Little Tykes, which was on the verge of bankruptcy. We purchased Little Tykes in 2006 and now does over $500 million in sales. So I give all the credit to my team. They're innovative. They are out-of-box thinkers, and I'm just a cheerleader <laughs> for them. I think uh, your philosophy has to have come out from your biography. Can you just fill listeners in a little bit on your journey? Yes, thank you, Richard. You know, I came to uh, America at the age of 17 in 1971 uh, from Iran before the revolution. I had a one-way ticket, $753. I had a big afro and dark skin. I had just saw the movie Easy Rider with Peter <laughs> Fonda in Iran, and it gave me a fantasy of uh, Los Angeles and California. I thought with my afro and my skin complexion, I will come there, land there, and there are going to be these, all these beautiful blonde girls waiting at the airport to help me. And <laughs> it didn't happen. So Darn. I had a blanket. Down. Yes. Don't believe everything you see in movies. So uh, I had a yellow blanket, which I still have. It's actually hanging at MGA headquarters. And basically, I started working as a dishwasher at the Spires coffee shop in Londale, making dollar sixty-five an hour, uh, the graveyard shift. And slowly, I, I graduated to become a busboy. And uh, then I went to other restaurants and waited tables until I graduated in civil engineering in 1978. I worked maybe for six days, five days, six days for Department of Highways in California. And when I went there, I mean, I worked hard to graduate with the civil engineering. They, they were asking me uh, to go and get coffee. So I quit and uh, started a company called Surprise Gift Wagon in 1979, which later on became ABC International Traders, Inc. And later on, it became Micro Games of America and MGA. How we got into toy business was I was in Japan. I don't remember, in early 80s. And, uh, you know, when I had the electronic business, I was a distributor for... Atari and Atari went belly up. So I had some idea about video games and I was in Osaka and Nintendo at that time was becoming very famous. So I went to Nintendo's headquarters in Kyoto and literally sat all day until they said, okay, we are going to, this guy is too persistent. Uh, they gave me a distributorship in the USA for Nintendo Game & Watch. So I started a division called Micro Games of America, 
and we sold Nintendo Game and Watch the first year close to $23 million at 32% margin. And I thought, oh my God, I found uh, the Holy Grail. I thought I'm going to die and go to heaven. So, uh, <laughs> but the second year, I was stuck with $10 million worth of <laughs> Nintendo Game and Watch, which I couldn't give it away because a company called Tiger Electronics saw the success of Nintendo Game and Watch and went to Warner Brothers, got the license for Batman, and they made handheld games, electronic games that sold at the price that I was paying Nintendo for Nintendo Game and Watch. So I learned a big lesson from that experience. It almost bankrupted me, but what the lesson I learned is that toy business is like a fashion business and new sales, and you always constantly have to innovate or you will be left behind. One third part of your story, I thought that was very important, that you noticed that none of the dolls that you were seeing when you came to the country seemed to have dark hair. They were right. all blonde. And you had decided that you would bring dark-haired girls to the doll. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Okay, so, uh, you know, the micro games of America, I got a lot of licenses expanded. In 1984 or 86, no, maybe 1994 or five, I think, a guy, an inventor by the name of Joe Trushas came to my office in October with a doll called, uh, that you bounced on your hand, and it sang, bouncy, bouncy, baby me. Uh, and he says, Isaac, I want you to uh, make this doll. I said, come on, Joe, I don't, make, I don't know how to make dolls. And, uh, <laughs> and he says, I'll help you. I said, I'm sure you've been to Tyco. Tyco was in business at the time, in toy business. I've, I've been, you've been to Toy Biz, you've been to Hasbro, you've been to Mattel, you've been to Playmate. All of them told you, no. <laughs> so why are you coming to me? He says, because they, all of those uh, looked at it and they said, no, uh, but they don't understand. They don't understand toys. So I think you understand that I'm passionate about this. So I said, okay, what the hell, we'll try it. Toy business is legalized gambling. <laughs> and we signed up for that. I took that prototype to Hong Kong, went to three factories, and I said, whoever can make this for $6.50, I'll give you an order for a million pieces. Two factories said, okay. And so I brought the sample. Uh, you know, at the time, I did everything myself, marketing, sales, product development, everything. So I took that sample and went around, got Toys R Us on board, got Kmart on board, got Target on board. And at that time, you needed to have at least three of the top in order to be on TV and make something successful. And then I took it to Walmart. Ron Stover was the buyer. And he said, I won't buy it. I said, Ron, wait a minute, 99 retail, try me. Here's my TV commercial. Why won't you give me a chance? 
And he said with that Southern accent, Isaac, you're micro games of America. Who will buy a, a doll from micro games of America? So I said, okay, Ron, if that's the only issue, I'm going to change the name to MGA. Uh, and he says, okay, you're too quick. Okay, we will put it in uh, 1,400 stores. <laughs> so that's how I got into the doll business. Then, you know, years after, I went to Ron with another doll, another extension. He wouldn't buy it. So I said to him, uh, in 1993, I had a brand new son. And I said to him, Ron, why don't you give me a chance? I come here all the way from L.A. And why didn't you give me a chance? So he said, if you come up with something that competes with Barbie, we will buy it. So, okay. So I went to my team. I said, give me something that competes with Barbie. Everybody showed me a Barbie knockoff. And I said, no, I want something different. And then one day, a designer by the name of Carter Bryant showed up in my office September 1, 2000, and showed me some drawings that were the original concept for Bratz. And I thought they looked like aliens, but my daughter happened to be in the office. She was, I think, 11 or 12 at the time. So I asked her, what do you think, Jasmine? She said, Dad, these are cool, very different. So, so I said, okay, we'll take a risk. We signed up for it. But I made sure that the dolls are not just all blonde. We need to have diversity. So we really created diversity in the doll eye back then, because before that, every doll was either blonde or a blonde doll that somebody had used the shoe polish <laughs> to uh, make a difference. So uh, took the four dolls to Hong Kong, took it to Ron Stover at Walmart, and he says, I won't buy this. I said, <laughs> come on, come on, man. You told me, you told me. He says, well, okay. Yes, I remember telling you that, but I will only buy Chloe. Chloe was the blonde one. Oh. I said, I said, Ron, if you want to buy brats, you need to buy the whole assortment. I won't sell it to you. And he says, why? I to just told you uh, only blonde dolls sell. So you have never tried. My daughter wants to have a doll that resembles her skin tone and hair, not Barbie. So he said, no, that's the only thing he's going to sell. That's what I'm going to buy. And by the way, you're going to change the package from trapezoid to be a square because, uh, because uh, it takes more space on the, on the shelf. So this time I went to, uh, all the way to Lee Scott, who was the CEO of Walmart, and I knew well. And I said, Lee, Look at what's going on here. So he told, uh, I forgot the name, but I think Bratcher was the GMM at the time, said, go tell Ron to take care of Isaac. He's a friend of Walmart. So Ron Stover by force bought one case bag, put it on the bottom left corner of the planogram, but nobody can see it. <laughs> and, and that's how... Brass was born and, you know, it became the number one selling toy. It became toy of the year for three years in a row. And the rest of it became history. Actually, Lee Scott, as the 
at one of the supplier store managers' events in Kansas City in front of 17,000 people. He, he called me out uh, and said, here's the example that a vendor was persistent when we said no, and he, he was persistent, and we got a place, we always don't do it right, we make mistakes. So that was a good example that he talked about. So that's in a nutshell, how was Brad's born? I want to ask you about your design because you mentioned that you had different skin tones. And the one thing about Bratz that I always remembered was that they were ethnically ambiguous, that you really coined that that phrase so that children could really project onto that doll what they wanted to see. And the other thing about Bratz was that your designers were incredible because they were taking looks off the runway and pushing them, right. which nobody else was doing. Talk a little bit about your design and your design team, because they always knock me out. I didn't want a dog to be called African-American or Persian or Mexican or or any of those things. So we just made it very ambiguous. So, and I remember traveling to Brazil, and Brazilian kids would say, oh, Yasmin is uh, Brazilian. I would go to Lebanon, they say, oh, she's Middle Eastern. So it was fascinating. That's something that we really resonated with kids. The other thing is, you know, we called, this was a fashion doll. And my team said, if it's a fashion doll, it must be fashion from the runway. Not just put a piece of clothes on it and call it a fashion doll. So I said, yeah, go for it. And that's what it is. It was a lot more expensive. The other thing that we did, Chris and Richard, is we made the package all open except the back. Because I said, if you have a beautiful doll, show it. Because by the, at that time, the fashion doll, I mean, the only fashion doll which had 98% market share and was Barbie, and they came in coffin boxes. You didn't know what was inside. Remember, they were in coffin box. So I said, no, let's show, let's show them. If you have them, strut them. And that was another major innovation that we did. And even that, you know, I told you about the trapezoid story. In general, I found out that a lot of people don't like change. And they are, they're afraid of change. They're afraid of change. So they, it met a lot of resistance. Uh, the, the open package, the trapezoid. It got a lot of resistance, but we were really persistent what we wanted to do. And I'm stubborn, as you guys know. And so I said, no, if I believe something, that's what we're going to do. I think it's really interesting because one of the things I always say is buyers will come to you and say, I want something brand new that's exactly like this. (laughs) Because they they, they want the known thing. Richard, what were you going to say? I think... I think on any scale, you are a genius. And oh, you're too kind. You're too kind, Richard. Let me explain. I think your genius is, of course, your ability to somehow, I don't get it, understand what little girls want. But what impressed me so much, those of us who are been around a while, understand the world changes as we go through each generation. 
we get different little girls with different tastes, and the world is very different. And then uh, you have taken this company, and each time you've gone through scale, you have managed to successfully manage the growth of your business. So I, I guess I want to understand from you, why do you think you have been able to understand the market over generations and didn't get stuck in the 1970s and how you were able to manage the scale of your business. Okay, now you're asking me for my trade secrets. No, I'm joking. Yes, we are. That's what we do here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, Richard, the analogy I use with my team all the time is... Who do you think invented the first communication device? And the young generation, at least, they have no idea about the telex machine. So the telex machine, I used to sit down and type one finger at a time on a tape. And if I made a mistake, I had to go back and do it again. I was in the office till 11, 12 o'clock at night sending telexes. And that telex was done by Western Union. And Western Union, because they said we are in the telex communication business, they missed the Xerox or copy machine. They mixed the fax machine. They missed uh, the internet, all of those. And now they became... They're pretty much non-existent now because they, they're only transferred dollars and that's going away pretty fast. So when you look at, you know, everybody now has a mobile device in their hand. But who created the first mobile device? It was a company called Palm Pilot. And they were the first ones. But what happened is that they became arrogant. All of these, whether it's the Western Union or whether it's Palm Pilot, I can give a lot of, lot of examples. They became arrogant. They said, oh, we own it. Uh, Blackberry said then, uh, who copied uh, Palm Pilot and made it better. And they didn't innovate. They didn't innovate. So I tell my people, okay, it's okay that LOL Surprise came out as a ball with a doll inside that you couldn't see. And it took the market by storm. But we're going to be copied left and right. How we take it to the next level? How do we make it a brand? So what we do is we are like chameleon. We change with how the children change, how the generation change. This is what we do. We don't get stuck where we are. You know, I was, uh, I was lucky to be uh, mentored by Andy Grove, who was the CEO of Intel, many, many, many years ago. And one of the things he told me, he saw me at CES because we used to go to the Consumer Electronics Show. And for some reason, he liked me, maybe because of my accent. He had an accent. And he said, come to San Jose for a few days, young man. I was, I think, 26 or 27 at the time. So I went there. And during the three days, one of the most important lessons that he taught me was only the paranoid survive. You know, then he explained that to me. He said, look, 
we know we came with Intel, and right now in Japan, the Japanese are sitting and in Panasonic, Toshiba, Sony. They're saying, "How are we going to knock off Intel?" And he said, "I've told my team, you knock yourself off by innovating before the Japanese do." And he actually wrote a book called "Only the Paranoid Survive." one of the best books which are out there. And I have used that mentorship in my brain in everything I do on operate. How do you see the little girls that when you first started your company and little girls today, do you see a big difference? Absolutely. I see a very, very big difference. It's changing. Funny that you say that, Richard. You know, we launched, it's a, believe it or not, it's the 21st birthday of Bratz. Wow. And 21 years. Those kids at the time, like my daughter, they were 9, 10, 11, 12. They grew up with Bratz. And they have their own children. You know, my daughter has two children now. And they, their children are so different than what they were. And we got to be able to really adapt to that. But the beauty of Bratz is it has made a major, major resurgence now. It is really, we go to stores, it's selling out left and right. And the reason for it is that those kids who grew up with Bratz, now they're adults and you call them kiddos who are buying it. I mean, we have Bratz mini Brats and mini cosmetics, which are real cosmetics, by the way. And we just cannot keep it in the stock at Walmart, Target, everywhere. So, so yes, the kids change, but the cycle continues. I wanted to ask you about your packaging. You mentioned your packaging and the trapezoid with Brats and, and all of that. And, and Richard and I were doing store checks together about this time last year. And we walked into a Walmart and we walked into a Target and... When we turned into the toy aisle, there was Rainbow High. And it was like theater, right? It was like theater. It was black. It was radiant colors. It was shiny. I mean, it was like, I don't remember anything else I saw on that aisle, but I remember I remember that aisle. How, how have you guys continued to develop packaging so that the theater, the play, really begins on the shelf? I really am a firm believer that packaging is as important as the product. Now we have spent, uh, they, luckily we are private. So being private has advantages. Every three months, I don't have to say, I make 55% gross margin because if I make 40, God forbid, uh, the stock market is gonna go down the tube. So we have put a lot of money in our packaging. We are a nimble, very frugal, greedy company, grit has, we have a lot of grit basically. (laughs) And uh, our overhead is lower than our competitors. We work on lower gross margins, but I believe that we really have to help and lead and give something different, different to the kids. When they go to the stores and buy Rainbow High, they love it. And then when they take it home and open that beautiful package, Every toy that we have, go buy an open, open one. It has a surprise in it that you didn't expect. 
So you go ahead and buy these and you go and say, oh, wow, I didn't know it came with these also. So that's how you get loyal consumers. But you got to keep on changing and innovating every minute. You cannot sit still. I think you'll agree that we in Toy and Shrink really shape children, help do it anyway. And in doing so, we shape the future. Right. And when we really think about that, pretty sober. Do you think about that? Absolutely. I think I think toys really shape and stretch the innovation and the imagination, the imagination of children. We're going to be a future of our generation and the generation after. And I think toys are so important in that area. You know, as Albert, Albert Einstein said, imagination is more important than knowledge. And this is what we have in mind everything we do, in everything we do. When you look at little tykes, you know, my son, Jason, who is now 36, I have a picture of him in my office on Cozy Coop when he was three and a half old. And Cozy Coop still keeps going and, and it doesn't break. These are toys that last and people pass it around from one generation to another generation. It's important to do that. It's not just about, I always say it's just not all about making the buck, make a difference, give great toys, stretch the imagination of children, and the money will come. I heard that you started as Micro Games of America and that Micro Games of America may be coming back. Are you willing to uh, lift the curtain a little bit on that? We are going back to our roots with a gaming division, and we have some great, great innovation in games, but stay tuned. You will find out about them pretty soon. You know, when we do something, we like to be break frame, either go big or go home. And I think we have just one game that we come up with first. It's going gonna, it's gonna to really take the industry by storm. You know, I already say the young people coming out of college do not see the toy industry as a career path. They, of course, go into gaming, they go into other forms of play, but not the toy industry. Do you think we do enough to establish in their minds that this is a great industry, not just for designers, but for accountants, you know, for marketers, for everybody? That's it. Excellent question, uh, Richard. The new generation, for the most part, they want to have a quick, quick and fast rags to riches. Everybody wants to become Mark Zuckerberg tomorrow, not now, tomorrow, or Jeff Bezos. So that's what they look at, and they toy business. They say it's hard. It's hard, but it's it's a, it's a great, satisfying, mental satisfaction that I get from making toys, from going to stores and watching children pick my toys and play with it. The, the satisfaction that I get there is worth more than any amount of money. And I have said that to my kids all along, and I'm happy to say that 
my son Jason and my daughter Jasmine, who we named one of the brass dolls after her name, yeah. Yasmin. They they love toys and they're getting involved with toys. So I'm happy. I'm happy that they're doing that. Hopefully, more and more. The issue that you're gonna have. Uh, I mean, we are a family-owned business, and uh, I think we can influence it. But the bigger toy companies, whether they're public or they're owned by private equity, I don't think that's that's what they're doing. So yes, I am worried long term for the state of toy business. Because the new generation really, a lot of them don't want to get into it. It's interesting, though, because we do see, we do continue to see a lot of creativity coming from small people who are kind of young versions of Isaac Larian, who are driven by the play and who are driven by yeah. the vision. Yeah, I am really, I give them a lot of kudos. One of the issues I have had with the Toy Association is, uh, and I've been public about it, is that you know, the Toy of the Year Award should be a sacred thing. And as a toy industry association, we need to really encourage the smaller, younger companies who are willing to take a risk. Instead of giving uh, or nominating toys from MGA or Mattel or Hasbro or Fisher Price or whoever, that's one of the things that's missing I think we got to do that encouragement to take it to a next level. The other thing I tell people, if you are successful in toy business, you can be successful everywhere. And I give an example. Brian Cornell, who is the CEO of uh, Target, was a toy buyer. Christina Huntington, who is the next, who will be the next CEO of Target, was my brass buyer. Doug McMillan, who is the CEO of Walmart was a toy buyer and a DMM over toys. Because if you make it in toys, you can make it everywhere. It's a tough industry. It's a fast industry. It's a fashion business. And if you just are persistent and make it there, it helps everybody's career in the future. It is something that you would like us to ask you. The only thing I like to say to the toy industry, I am really blessed and grateful. I made my fortune and raised my family, etc., from toy business. And we need to give back as a toy industry to the next generation and next generation and keep it going. Keep it going. Keep the children in mind first and then uh, the money second and it will be successful. That's actually a beautiful sentiment. So... Isaac, we're going to ask you the question we're asking every guest on the Playground podcast. What was your favorite play experience growing up? I was very poor, Chris, uh, growing up. I didn't have a toy. The only toy I had was a kite that I made myself from newspaper, old newspapers, and a couple of uh, branches of wood and some strings. So... That is, I guess, my favorite toy. My wife says, you know, she's very philosophical. So she says, the reason you went into toy business because you didn't have toys as a child growing up. So you're living your child within. Actually, she bought me a book with that name to read. Yeah, but I didn't have toys. I had no toys. 
And Isaac, you have certainly provided tons of play and tons of joy for children, not just in the U.S., but around the world. We are so thrilled that you found time, especially at this time of year, to talk with us. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Richard. This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are supported by Global Toy Experts, The Toy Guy, and Beacon Media Group. We'll see you next time.